Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of the In Squash podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, today we have a great uh, podcast, a great coaching podcast, which I believe uh, aligns well with what's going on out there. I think it's the world uh, coaching uh, convention going on somewhere. Uh, I saw that um, on Facebook today, but uh, in line with that, we have uh, two uh, prolific names from uh, the Squash Skills uh, website. Uh, we have Jesse Engelbrick uh, and Gary Nisbet on the podcast today, and uh, this is one. This is a really, really good podcast. You don't want to uh, to miss this one. Uh, hadn't had uh, Jesse on the podcast before, but uh, what a revelation he is. Uh, we talked. Uh, he, I'm sure he could talk for for days and days about squash. He seems to be uh, very passionate. And from the get-go, it was like he was shot out of a cannon. Every question I uh, had for him and the listeners, obviously, I took many questions uh, for this one from the listeners. And uh, he just, uh, you know, he had so much intel, so much uh, sort of knowledge. Uh, He had a lot of curiosity himself. He's a... Uh, a great coach by from what I can gather but also he's always uh, trying to improve himself as a coach so um, we go into detail on uh, many different things uh, including junior development he's got some great ideas on that Uh, a lot of technical stuff Um, I think when I when he Jesse first came to my attention uh, I'd heard his name before uh, on you know just following professional squash but um, uh, he first really came to my attention with his uh, footwork uh, stuff on squash skills. I watched that and I thought it was quite useful. I still haven't uh, mastered the, the, the split step completely, but he's a big proponent of that. And um, it's uh, one of his non-negotiables, I think he mentions. Uh, we get into a lot about footwork, a lot about ghosting patterns and different things that he does with his, uh, with his students. And uh, also uh, Gary Nisbet, of course, he, I believe, was on episode 28, and uh, he returned today as well. And again, you know, if you listen to episode 28, Gary really knows his stuff, and he came uh, in the middle of the podcast. We had a little uh, scheduling issue uh, there, and uh, but he came on and, and finished the show very strong. Uh, a lot of really good, again, technical stuff. Gary's very well versed in, and also he's more of the uh, the strength and conditioning guy. <coughs> and he set the record straight in terms of um, doing a proper warm up, what that means, how important it is, and uh, went through various uh, ways that we can do that. So I know uh, everyone's going to enjoy this podcast. I'm going to usually don't listen listen to these back because I edit them, but uh, I'm g- definitely going to uh, sit down and take notes uh, from this one. <clears throat> Gary Nesbitt and Jesse Engelbrett, great, uh, great podcast here for episode 48. And just to look at um, what's going on out there in the squash world, I did mention earlier about the World Coaching uh, Convention. I noticed uh, a really good friend of mine, Ku Ryun-hui, he's the uh, the head coach for the Korean national team. We I used to uh, play and train a lot with uh, with him back when I lived in Seoul, uh, back in the mid '90s. Uh, he was there, and I noticed he uh, he had taken uh, a selfie along with uh, Mike Way. So uh, obviously, some big names are are there at that. Uh, conference so uh, hopefully that bears fruit for them I'm sure it will with the uh, names like that uh, there at the uh, at the conference so that'll be interesting to see what comes of that and uh, in terms of uh, professional events the Hong Kong Football Club in- 
uh, Invitational is uh, currently ongoing. Uh, on the men's side, uh, Hong Kong's well represented three of four semifinalists, uh, including Max Lee and Leo Au, I think the number one and two seeds, so uh, they might be favored to head through. But Yusuf Suleiman uh, has been playing well, and he'll uh, play against uh, Leo and try to upset the, the home uh, crowd favorite there. And on the women's side, uh, I believe it's uh, Annie Ao, the top seed, through to the semifinal, having to uh, play against, uh, I think, one or two uh, Egyptian girls. A couple of the younger girls who are coming up uh, have made it through to the semi. And uh, amongst other events, I think there are several going on, but another one in particular uh, that, that's interesting to me is the Nash Cup in London, Ontario. Uh, London being the home of uh, Western uh, University, which is uh, a powerhouse in the collegiate squash uh, scene uh, dating back many, many years. Uh, the likes of Gary Waite, I think uh, Jamie Crombie, several of uh, our top players uh, through the years have played uh, in London at Western, and uh, they have the Nash Cup, which is ongoing right now. And I think they're through to the semifinal stages. Um, we have, uh, I think, Sam Cornett is through to the quarterfinals on the women's side. Uh, Andrew Schnell had gotten through to the quarter or the round of 16, uh, but he lost yesterday. So uh, I think, um, and also Sean Delier, he he went up against Vikram uh, Mahutra from India, who's a, who took out the number one seed as well. So the Canadian interest on the men's side is uh, is finished, but uh, we still have Sam Cornett uh, through to the uh, quarterfinals on the women's side. So good luck uh, to Sam. Uh, good luck to everyone, actually, uh, today at the Nash Cup and also at the Hong Kong Football Club Invitational. Uh, my invitation to anyone who's interested is still uh, out there. Uh, for the Hong Kong Football Club Invitational, uh, I think part of that is what they call the Hong Kong Threes, which is an event where you can uh, put together a team of three. Um, now, I believe uh, there's a 45-plus event involved in that as well, so uh, three players, 45 and over. I'm looking to put together a team. I've got, uh, I had a few bites uh, recently on my offer, but... Uh, Anyone who's interested, just drop me uh, an email on the Facebook uh, In Squash uh, podcast uh, site, or you can, you can just shoot me an email or a message, uh, direct message me somehow. I'm out there on, on the Twitter and uh, Facebook. I haven't done Instagram yet, though. Um, I'm a bit late to the game. I should get out there on Instagram and uh, maybe Snapface. Um, as, oh, no, no, Snapchat. Sorry, Snapchat. All right, everyone. Anyways, um, I, I know you're really going to enjoy this episode 48. Uh, it's a coaching uh, episode. It, uh, it's going to be great. Uh, really enjoyed talking to Jesse uh, Engelbred and Gary Nisbet of Squash Skills. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode uh, 48 of the In Squash podcast. And today we've got a special episode. Uh, Jesse Engelbrick and uh, Gary Nisbet from uh, Squash Skills are joining us today, and we've got some uh, podcast listener questions that uh, they've been, uh, you know, they they said that they would uh, be happy to answer for us. Now, uh, Gary uh, famously came on the podcast for episode twenty-eight a few uh, months ago, uh, but this is Jesse's uh, first appearance on the podcast. Um, he has his own squash academy, the Jesse Engel Engelbrick Squash Academy. Uh, Back in the junior days, he, he had an impressive uh, career uh, as Zimbabwe's number one junior for several years. Then 
moved to South Africa after uh, some issues there within Zimbabwe, as many of us might know about, had to move there and, and represented uh, South Africa's national team for a few years, bypassed a scholarship to Harvard to play uh, pro squash, and began coaching um, in 2008 with his academy, which, uh, which opened it began coaching in 2008, and the academy opened its doors in 2010, and now he's uh, uh, also with squash skills these days. Uh, Jesse, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Hey, Jerry. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, no, looking forward to it. Um, yeah, any, anything to talk about squash and, and any excuse to uh, shoot the breeze about the game we all love, uh, more than happy to do so. So, yeah, thanks for the uh, introduction. Cheers, mate. Uh, now, I know the summer camps are big uh, with, with many of the uh, the top coaches around the world these days. That uh, probably uh, also includes you. Uh, now, that, uh, how was your summer uh, squash camp experience this year? <clears throat> yeah, it was good. It was. Um, I, I, I kind of streamlined it a bit this year. Uh, previously, uh, I think I was I was accommodating um, uh, big numbers, which which is which is fine. It's good for the bank balance, I suppose. But um, <laughs> I wanted to, yeah, just I suppose hone a few of my more top end players, you know. Um, so yeah, kind of reduced it to probably like nine and ten numbers. Uh, did about six throughout the summer, so it wasn't a huge burden. Um, and yeah, pretty much kept it all myself. Uh, so I actually changed my format quite a lot this summer. I've been listening to quite a few interesting uh, podcasts, you know, like, like, like hopefully we all do, just about the coaching world and the coaching sphere at the moment. And um, what podcast, yeah, I did get uh, a lot more. A lot more what podcast, uh, okay, sorry right. for interrupting you, uh, which, which ones are you referring to? Like a couple that might interest some of the listeners maybe. Yeah, so I've only got well one sport one at the moment that, that I'm just all over. It's called the Talent Equation. It's uh, yeah, I can't remember the guy's name, but an English guy, and it, it's fantastic. It's it's he gets great guests on. Uh, have you heard of that one yet? Have you come across? Uh, I haven't heard of that. No. No, I highly recommend it. And, and what I've done is with a lot of my assistant coaches, so I've got a, two or three coaches that work uh, underneath me. I keep sending them links to these podcasts and, and these ones in particular because this guy's philosophy is, is, is massively on uh, a games-based approach to learning, you know, so mm. not necessarily what we deem as a coach, you know, sh shouting from the sidelines, screaming instructions, you know, very directive approach. And, and he's really trying to encourage coaches and, and, and the, the, the sphere at the moment is this games-based approach. So, you know, encouraging creativity, encouraging uh, responsibility, decision-making. And yeah, so my summer camps really evolved that. And, and because of that, I had to keep the numbers relatively low because, I wanted quite a lot of open space on the course. I wanted them to be expressive. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, little things like working working in groups and puzzle solving, you know, coming up with these tactics and, and team play. And yeah, by the end of it, I, I, I was really enthused about what they learned. And it, it kind of felt like deep learning in a way. It felt like, you know, though, rather than me just prescribing them something to do, you know, a, yeah. a drill or a technical aspect, I was like, right, here's the framework, here's the environment go figure it out yourself. And yeah, I was, I was basically just trying to host that environment best I could. But yeah, no, based than, on I guess in education, we refer to that as uh, fishing over feeding. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 and, and for me, it's really interesting. And it's, I feel it's, I've always had that in the back of my mind, you know, this game based approach, but, but it feels, it felt strong this summer. It felt mm. like it, it made some inroads and um, yeah, it's it just, you know, the, 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 the choking under pressure, you know, the, the way players tense up and you, you know what it's like when, when, when things are going wrong, a lot of the time the players, they, they go back to like, oh, technically, how do I do this? How do I hold my racket? How should I play my drop shot? And, you know, that actually just gets in the way even more in my opinion. So 
it was it was trying to empower the players to be right. Things aren't going right. You're you're under a little bit of pressure. Things are going wrong. How can you solve this without a technical input in a way? And I find that a really interesting challenge, you know. So yeah, it, it feels like my coaching is almost evolving in in situ a little bit. And and I think hopefully most coaches have that, you know. If you, if you get stuck in one way, you know, you might you might get found out in the long run. So well, for sure. I mean, you, been, you've uh, deal with a couple of things uh, simultaneously: the evolution of of the game of squash, and then the evolution of uh, coaching. Yeah, completely. And and I think they, they both should go hand in hand, shouldn't they? You know, it's, it's uh, I, I get a bit nerdy about watching squash TV and, and, you know, I think hopefully it comes across on some of the squash skills videos I do where, you know, I just sit and watch. And, and But then I'll pick different points to watch. I won't just watch the game unfold. I'll, I'll challenge myself to, you know, whether it's just the grip or whether it's, it's certain parts of the swing or whether it's a movement pattern or, or combinations. And so it's almost using that as my, um, my, my framework and then thinking about the slightly more creative way of coaching rather than going with, with, with a group or an individual and actually instructing them, actually telling them directly what it is because it almost it feels like it's, it's been a bit of a clone. It feels like a little bit of a copy that sometimes won't you know, transfer across to each individual. But if they can find their own way, if they can find a little bit of creativity in themselves with that framework around it. I think that's very empowering and, you know, that feels sustainable under pressure. So, you know, yeah. hopefully it might stand the test of time, but yeah, it's been an interesting way to, way to look at it. For sure. Now you mentioned a, a little while back there, you, you're working with some of your, your, the, the players that you're kind of focusing on more these days. Are they uh, mm. UK based juniors or are they uh, at a higher level? Uh, who who are the who are these guys that are in your camp nowadays? Yeah. You're getting more of your attention. Yeah, pretty simple. If I'm honest, it's it's um, players within my catchment area. I suppose it, has, it starts with that. You know, within a 50 mile radius. And I suppose I've been working with them for about four or five years, and they've all started to reach. I wouldn't say the higher ends of the game, but you know, they'll be playing in in like the Surrey, you know, Surrey Open or Surrey Closed, and they'll be looking to win it. So, right. and then from there, they they're getting a few invites. To, um, there's a few different pathways in the England squash model, you know, um, in, um, what's it called, um, EDP potential and then EDP, uh, you know, and, and basically some of these kids are getting into that, that slightly bottom end of that now. So, you know, there's no massive, you know, world champions there at the moment. And, and, and I'm completely fine with that. And for me, I, I, just, I just love that, that I'm able to take them on a path where, you know, at 11, 12 years old, so relatively late, they only picked the racket up. And by 15, 16, they, they winning the county closed and potentially getting invited to the England stuff. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 that, I do have. A- that brings up a question uh, that I have. I mean, when they're starting at 11 and they reach uh, a really good level at 15, is there mm-hmm. a magic, uh, is there a, like a, a magic formula for getting the, the kids to actually stick with it through that? Like, what, what is it? Uh, you probably, <laughs> probably just it's having a hard one. Um, uh, well, yeah, create, creating the right atmosphere, I guess. Yeah, for me, I, I'm massive on on environment. You know, um, you know, fun fun has to be pretty much front and center. You know, I've I've thought about coaching, and especially at that age group, you know, when they come to squash, it can't feel like school. I, I, they're under so much pressure as it is. You know, these, these 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 young lads and girls. You know, there's exam pressure. You know, there's pressure from their peers. For me, I, I like to create the environment where it's, um, you know, an outlet in a way that can come to squash and, you know, yeah, there, there, there's going to be structure, obviously, and there's going to be some directive coaching, but actually like, you know, like, like getting them to enjoy it. And for, for me, it, it goes along the lines of, I think I'm trying to create 
an all-rounded, just a good person. I think if you can get a good person, you know, yeah. someone who is, who's, um, you know, responsible, someone who is, who, who can interact with adults and juniors alike, who can, you know, um, actually run a session. So, so I actually get some of my better juniors to, you know, start to, to coach some of the other junior lower down tiers. I actually get, strangely enough, I get some of my 15, 16 year olds to run a session, which we've got, you know, for slightly retired people. So, so people okay. who are maybe 55, 60 plus. So for a 15, 16 year old to coach, or to actually kind of get on court and, and structure a session for quite like, like um, someone who's retired. I think that that's, that's really challenging for them. That's but massive, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it creates, it creates this, this level of interaction, this level of, you know, how they communicate, how they put their point across. And the little things like that, I, really, I'm, I'm probably more proud of how they come out the other end as a person rather than their results. You know, like one lad in particular, he's just about to turn 18 and he's, he's basically my main assistant coach now. And, he started from 12 years old and, 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 you know, every member that comes across him at our club, like all the adults, they just go, oh, he's, just, he's such a lovely lad. You know, he, he talks to us, he gives us advice, he engages with us. And for me, I'm, I'm probably more proud of that than, you know, what, what if he becomes, you know, a world champion. You know, I think he's come out the other side, you know, able to offer something back to the game and, and, and interact well. So I think for me, that, that, that environment probably creates a bit more sustainability within my players. Oh, and sure. I feel I've almost got the, 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 the next batch of these, I don't know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds who, who look up to this 18-year-old lad and because he's coached them. And there's this kind of recycling process I, I like to talk about where I recycle my juniors. I know that might sound a bit blunt, but, you know, <laughs> where, where, where it went to a certain level. And I suppose I'm, I'm not expecting that's the wrong word, but, but encouraging them to, to give back and engage and interact. And if I'm honest, you know, now he comes down and he's just creating his own sessions. He's grabbing a whole bunch of his mates that have never played squash before. So I, not that it's the magic bullet or the magic wand, but I, I feel there's a sustainability with that, that, that key age group that, look, how many distractions our 15, 16 year olds have, you know, you know, yeah. Fortnite, the game, Fortnite itself is just a distraction in itself. <laughs> I know that. And, um, you know, I, can, I can imagine. 14 year old so, um, daughters. Yeah, that, I uh, really are. Are, yeah. are they well into it? Do they love that? Well, uh, yeah, uh, we try to sort of uh, temper it, but uh, sometimes it's hard to do. I can imagine. Um, and actually, weirdly, just on Fortnite, I'm um, listening to the talent equation, and the, the the guy who hosts it actually not that he encourages the game, but he he actually thinks it's got a got a good level of creativity in that game, and how you know, okay, it's online, but how some of the the friends are having to work as a team yeah. and, and puzzle solve as a team. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I think we need to do uh, with our, like our, my generation. I'm, I'm 50, 50 years old, so I'm slight, uh, a bit older than you. But uh, I think our generation has to figure out, you know, how to work within this new dynamic, you know, and how, how to make yes. it, and figure out how to make it work and go with it, like 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 you're. Yeah. You know. First thing, I don't think I don't think you can kind of fight fight the change, so to speak. No. It's, it's trying to think of creative ways to embrace it and, and go right. You know, we, we we're gonna we're gonna try get this right. And because I think if you just put barriers in the way of that, you know, you know, arguably the kids are gonna probably rebel and they're gonna do it anyway. But if you can reframe it or re or think about it in a different way, where it's it's helping their decision making or helping their cooperation. You know that that could only be a good thing, but look, I think it's all going to be a balance, doesn't it? You know, it For can't sure. can't be extreme one way or the other. But what you were saying earlier about uh, getting your juniors to go out and, and uh, do some coaching with some uh, some of the more senior players, I think, uh, and communicating and uh, people skills, mm -hmm. the soft skills, uh, 
to me, I, I think that that might be the best way of phrasing it. That a soft skill yeah. might translate into uh, obviously into the, maybe the, just the quality of their own game in a way because they have the ability, mm-hmm. you know, sort of to to think things through a bit more, maybe to uh, to sort of communicate what they want to you and not be yeah. afraid to to sort of go there as well. Yeah, I don't think, again, hopefully I've I've given them a bit of a benchmark to try use, you know, going, okay, this is how I would communicate to you guys. And and in a way, I try to treat them as as much as adults as I can, you know, within reason, you know, sometimes it's hard to to treat a a rowdy 12-year-old as an adult, but, you know, you you show them them that respect, you you can then have that little private chat with them, like like just going, you're doing really well, but, you know, if you could just, you know, kind of, you know, temper your feelings a little bit and you'll get way more out of the session. And, and yeah, it's, it's and, and all the juniors, I tend to get them interacting really early on in just our, our regular, you know, we've got box leagues and we've got club nights and all the juniors, I really encourage them to, to, to get on court. And so if they're not coaching, they, they're interacting with, with adults and, and their peers as well. And for me, it's, it, it just, I, it, for me, it's such a great soft skill to learn so early on. And, you know, the parents of the kids love it. And actually the members really enjoy seeing the youth come through and go, oh, wow, we're creating this young, you know, kind of force of squash players that, that, that are giving back. They're not just turning up, you know, and, and sometimes there's a tipping point, like sometimes the best kids, it almost feels like it's all about them. It's kind of like, right, I'm, I'm number like top five in the country and, you know, direct everything at me, you know, like my strength and conditioning, my nutrition, my coaching. And not that that's right. Obviously that, that works and that gets the kids to the top, but uh, what, what, it's such an interesting stat. I don't know if it's as much in squash, but along the lines of 97% of youth, you know, sport participants don't make it to the elite level. So right. one of my arguments is going, well, if, if only 3% make it, you know, wouldn't you want your kid to be more of an all-rounded person? Like, like you know, that, that, that can, when they get into the real world, if they don't make it in the elite level of the game, are they, are they better rounded? Can they have a, a set of skills that when they go to university and get a job, that they've got, you know, more about them? You know, so I think it's, right. for me, that's a real interesting debate because, I, I, again, no one in particular comes to mind, but imagine that kid from 12 till 18, that just gets given like everything like that. Like, here's your five sessions a week of coaching. Here's your three strength and condition. Here's your nutrition. And what if he doesn't make it? What if he gets to 18 and, and just doesn't quite have it? You know, how, what's he going to enter the world like? You know, I, again, I, I, I don't have an answer. It's just, it's things that pop into my head. It right, might well, sound like I'm getting a little bit kind of holistic here, but. No, exactly. I mean, it, it's probably something may, maybe, that wasn't paid much attention to in the past simply because it was, you know, we're thinking squash, we're thinking skills training, but uh, it is common sense, isn't it? Yeah, sure. I think it's really big in um, uh, listening to rugby coaches. I think rugby coaches do a lot of that. They, 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 they coaching the person, you know, they, they're not initially coaching the sport. They're going, yeah, the sport's there, the sport's a part of it, but, but they would prefer probably someone you know less skillful less tactical well, it's such a with, big with part them. of that game isn't it i mean you, you've got a club the, the rugby clubhouse is probably the most prolific part of uh, of that sport yes. it's the after the game stuff <laughs> correct 
Correct. And, and again, I think, I think there's, there's nothing wrong to link that to squash and, and find a way to, to, to make people involved. Well, when, make your students into better people. And I think once you've got better people, you know, they'll, they'll buy into you more. They will be more open-minded. They'll be more receptive to different skills and challenges you put in, you know? So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to think about things and look, it's, it's not necessarily right. It's not necessarily wrong. It's, it's just something that, that I feel yeah, quite passionate about. And, and yeah, I think I'm seeing the fruits of my labor, you know, four, five, six years down the line now. Um, and yep, whether a few of them become, you know, top in the country, that's a, that's a lovely little added bonus, but I'm, I'm kind of confident in my skin that I can send them out into the world and go, Hey, you know what? You, 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 you're, you're, you're ready. You're ready to play university squash. You're ready to, you know, get into a club and see if you can become club champion and that type of stuff. You know, whether that leads on to greater and greater things is, is a whole other debate. For sure. Now, um, what I, I'd like to sort of get into some a little bit more technical stuff. I know the the listeners might uh, be uh, be excited to hear some of your your what you think about these things. Now, you first uh, you came to my attention. Obviously, you've been around the squash scene. I'd seen your name on the on the pro tour back when you were playing a little bit. Uh, but you came to my attention more, uh, I think it was with your first uh, exposure on squash skills. It might've been that footwork series that you did. Uh, I think yeah. that might've been your first, I could be wrong, but uh, now is footwork something that you sort of as a player managed particularly well and, tr- and sort of that translated well for you uh, in terms of coaching it uh, uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the first video. And um, well, actually, really, there was a whole bunch of videos I did before that, but um, the the sound mic wasn't turned on, so I probably wasted a whole day and a half. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've then, done that. I've done yeah, that on the podcast. I know. Yeah. Oh man. And so all of that data just had to get scrubbed. It actually wasn't a bad thing. Then we revisited it about six months later, and I think I just had a bit more technical knowledge on it. So. Um, okay, so maybe give you a bit of background, uh, you know, lucky enough to grow up in Zimbabwe and go to school in Zimbabwe where, you know, school finished at one o'clock every day and you would play two sports every afternoon. So you'd have hockey and rugby on a Monday and then you'd probably have athletics and cricket on a Tuesday. And, and so like from 12 to 18, we were just exposed to, you know, beautiful weather. We were exposed to these amazing, you know, different environments of different sports and, you know, different skill sets. And I didn't specialize early on. I, I had to actually choose when I was about 17, 18, choose between, you know, uh, middle distance running and, and squash. So, um, and I just find middle distance running utterly boring. So I was like, right, squash is <laughs> yeah, a, bit more, yeah. a bit more creativity to it. And um, so, so I think I was very, like blessed that, that I had quite a natural um, feel for the game and my footwork in, in, in regard to my movement around the court, and, you know, natural fitness, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just found movement patterns and flow relatively easy. And I remember coming over to the UK at, at you know, 18 and, and played in the British Junior Open and yeah, I managed to get to the quarterfinals. Somehow I was like, you know, seated outside the top 32. So, and I was definitely less skillful than these players. I was, you know, technically nowhere near as good as them. But I think my, my movement and my footwork made me punch, you know, a good 40, 50% above my weight in regard right. to that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I joined the Pro Tour pretty soon after that. And yeah, I remember beating a few guys in the top 150, 120 that, as I said, I should never really have beaten. But because I, I, I was able to move quite well, that, that, that made a huge difference. Um, and then, yeah, just I, I think that I made that my massive foundation of, of my game is, is the movement and the flow. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, a powerful mover, but I think I was quite light and quick and agile and, and, and could dance around quite well. 
yeah, yeah that's a good word efficiency was it and then um and and if i'm brutally honest i didn't kind of know how i did it well i suppose all my different sports and environments help but the, in regards to the technical detail of the movement you know we'll talk about the split step and the power points and the two-footed base in the back and uh, all, all those really interesting stuff uh, that that i, I kind of learned later on so i remember Again, I was able to watch a little bit of myself towards the end of the career. You know, there, there was, you know, squash TV. Right. But unfortunately, wasn't back <coughs> around when I was playing. But not that I would have been on, on lots of them. But right. um, I was able to kind of see myself. And then I was trying to then compare that to obviously then, then what we saw a lot more of. You know, you started looking at like a Shabana and Jonathan Tower, who, who you know, the first thing that comes to mind is their racket work and their skills. But I think if you scratch beneath the surface, their movement was phenomenal. Like, like sure. how... It would flow and, and just how they would time their movements and time their split step. And I know Jonathan Powell talks a lot about his movement off the ball. You know, this, this idea about investing a lot of his, um, his, his, his efforts and energies into his explosion off the shot. And, and that really resonated with me. And he, he said that was a very attacking way to move because up till then, I thought attacking was going right from the tee and let's go attack the next ball. But yeah, yeah. when I heard him talk about his movement off the ball as an attacking asset, uh, that was really interesting, and and if I'm that, that was probably the first seed that got planted into the analytical side of the movement. Um, and like I referred to earlier, I just started watching a lot more squash when I decided, you know, right, coaching is my career now. You know, I'd, I'd done the tour, enjoyed it, had some success, had some failures, and I was like, right, I really want to be the best I can be within my field. You know, go right. If, if I need the technical underpinning of of good movement patterns. So yeah, watching a lot of squash, slow mowing it down. Um, you know, putting a few videos, you're know, overlaying them on top of each other, you know, kind of quite nerdy stuff. But um, yeah, yeah. That's, well, what I think. You gotta, that's what coaches do, don't you? I mean, you, you, you watch yeah, video I, all night. Yeah, completely. And, and it, was, it was getting that, it was getting the framework of, you know, it, it's not always exactly the same. Like you look at Ali Farag and then mm. you look at a Miguel Rodriguez, you know, you, yes. you can't necessarily go, this is how you move and squash and here's your manual. You know, it's not like that. But I would say there's non-negotiables. I would say there'd be like, you know, I didn't know necessarily list, but you know, seven or eight non-negotiables that probably all of them would do within their movement pattern. And then um, it was it was then about you know giving the players their individual differences and, and thinking about that. But so yeah, what, what would the it. non-negotiables be? So you know, for me, split step. Split step is is uh, some people like 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 a Nick Matthew would do it ninety five percent of the time. You know, you'd watch him on the tee. The split step is happening. Like a, a Daryl Salby, maybe an Ali Farag, still split stepping a lot, but it would probably be a bit less than Nick Matthew. Sometimes those players would 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 just kind of transition off the tee without a split step. Yeah. I would then say that 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 is my biggest framework of of the non-negotiable. The other one, and 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 this is where squash, you know, to the the trained eyes is just beautiful to look at. But to the untrained eye, you know, you'd watch someone who has never seen squash, and you'd say, oh, they're just walking around the court. They 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 don't even look like they're trying. So I, I think is you know squash sometimes doesn't do itself favors because these guys are so beautiful and graceful around the court. Yeah. So the other non-negotiable would be the, the that, that efficiency, that, that, that flow around that court, that, that idea where um, the initial movement is quite, quite fast a lot of the time, but as they're approaching the ball, there's that, that moment of lull before they engage, whether that's off the back wall, whether that's moving to the front. Right. So I would say that, that efficiency and that lull would be a, a, another massive non-negotiable. Yeah. And then third, probably broad one, uh, would be the, the, the ability to, to have that balance and poise on most shots 
and then be able to recoil back in whichever position they're in. They could be in the most ridiculously big lunge, but they're <laughs> able to elasticize, if that's even a word, but become elastic moving back to the tee or whether they, they are two-footed plants in the back, they're able to transfer their body weight. So yeah. I think if you use that as your framework of, of some of the non-negotiables, you know, I would say every player in the top 50 in the world, or top 100, top 200 in the world, you know, probably has that in there somewhere. You know, some have it better than others. Um, and then there's slightly different ones like, you know, uh, Miguel Rodriguez's little kind of scamper around the front or Ali oh, yeah. Frag's more more extended lunge in the back, you know. Well, he, like I mean, uh, he's incredible. His movement into, into the front court and, and the way that he can just pick up what seem to be un, ungettable balls in the front court yeah. with such ease it's and such accuracy. It's a, it's an, yeah, it's it is amazing. It's a weird one with Rodriguez. I, I kind of use him as quite a, I think he's evolved so amazingly, you know, obviously winning the British Open at the end of the last season was, was unbelievable, fantastic. But I would say his movement up to a certain point in his career was, was actually not very good because it would look glamorous on, you know, squash TV and doing these dives and these kind of, you know, the, you know, disco time type moves and he's running through the shots and spinning and that. But yeah, actually yeah. for me, that, that, that was a negative. That, that, was, oh, that, sure. that meant he got himself yeah. into such a, a bad position that he had to do that. Well, uh, I, you know, I you think about it, beginner players, uh, the, a beginner, that's what they do. They run yeah, through their yeah. shots, <laughs> right? Completely. And, yeah. and so it might look amazing, but, but there was something wrong there. But I think he then sorted out maybe a couple of years ago and accumulated in the British Open when he played Shabagi, where I don't think he, he might maybe dived once, but his movement was so calm. It was so calculated. He was, he was using his PowerPoints off the tee and he was really stable in all his shots. And yeah. for me, it was really interesting to see. And, and arguably, that, that, that's what won him the, the event. He, he had this calmness about his movement. He didn't have this, you know, the disco time didn't come out nowhere near as much. So I, I find that really interesting how he evolved. Maybe because he's got a little bit older and, you know, he can't just throw his body around like he used to. But yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, going back to your original question, movement, man, it's, it's such a foundation of, of the game. And, you know, it's, it's a really thing, I, an early on coaching point I, I get with my players. For sure. Now, um, I had Neil Harvey on, and we all know uh, back during his gen, it was the the, the power nickel the generation. Uh, yeah. He had the yeah. the footwork uh, routine. I guess they called it the the one hundred. Uh, Again, the the one hundred uh, where where they tell me about that. Uh, I don't I don't know the specifics of it, but it, it was a Neil Harvey thing, and and uh, he would do the, he would do kind of one hundred ghosting. Uh, right things around the court and it was more of a wide approach into the ball like taking sort of sort of that angle a wider angle yeah. into the ball yeah. and um, I guess the game obviously it's evolved uh, to the point where ghosting and uh, ghosting patterns and, and what we do in that regard ha has evolved um, if you uh, were to advise people on a, a few ghosting routines that might help with efficiency or that lull, like, like you say, I think the lull is more about following the, the play and knowing how quickly and how slowly you can get sure. back to the tee. Uh, what would you yeah. advise uh, in terms of ghosting and, and the way the game's evolved? It's a bit faster now, obviously. Sure. Um, right. <laughs> how long do you have? A million <laughs> questions there. Okay. No, no, again, I, I love that. And I, so, I think I, I I think I had I had a ridiculous amount of ghosting at some point. Like I had all these PDFs and all these kind of files. So I, I've I've probably split it into maybe I don't know two or three broad areas. So 
One thing I like to start with with ghosting is um, I get my players to do what's called meditative ghosting, and and what that means is is you're, you're you're playing a rally, so you can go to any point in the court. There's no necessarily massive structure, and you basically are trying to simulate a rally where where it's a bit of cat and mouse. You know, you're not you're not necessarily attacking all the time. You're not defending all the time. There'll be moments of that. But yeah, you know, five and five or six minutes worth of you know meditative ghosting. So it sounds a lot. So like a five minute rally, but it's 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 you know just above walking pace. There's going to be the odd moments you're going to move relatively quick. Okay. So I like to use that as 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 one because because you're simulating um, different parts of the court. You're not so going. That, in, that's in, in five matches. minutes in one in one shot. Yeah. So five okay. minutes on, and you know, like a good couple of minutes off. You know. So so, but we're talking like probably working at 70% of your, of your kind of, of your max. So you're not, you're not, you're not maxing out. Right. Um, you're, you're basically doing it in a, in a rhythm and a flow. So you're working on your, your split step, you're working on that lull type movement, but in your mind, you're visualizing that as, as, as that cat and mouse type of the rally. So, cause, cause I, some, I just get my players to do that sometimes and I just sit back and watch them and, and I, I record them and I video them and I show it back to them. And, and for me, that's a real powerful way to do it because they might be missing their split step or they might, they might be scampering too fast. They might be actually going too quick. And I'm going, no, no, you, you, need, a, you need to exchange a little bit slower. So that's the one end of the spectrum. That's the kind of the, the where you're really working technical details on, you know, specifics, but you've got a nice, you know, framework to do it on. Mm-hmm. And then and I'll go all the way to the other side of the spectrum, which would be, um, I've, I've got this, this, this session called 32 Corner Ghosting. And it, it mm. says what it is on the tin. It's 32 corners. And it's, it's just pure brutality in straight lines. So you, yeah. you put eight, you put eight balls down. You put two balls down in the back left, two balls down in the back right, um, two ball, one ball either side of the volleys, and one, uh, two balls in the front. So eight balls, um, and basically you've got to complete the thirty-two corners in in the shorter space of time. So that is literally like you're you're not stopping on the tee. You're you're almost just putting a foot close to the tee and changing direction. You're swinging hard over the ball. You're trying to use a recoil in your swing. To, to just explode back to the tee, mm-hmm. it, it is just brutality. And it, it takes about, if you go really quick, it's about a minute and 15 seconds. Okay. Um, so that, that, that is like a really, like that's a pretty quick one. I remember training with Mark Shalina. You might have remembered him. I think about yeah, number yeah. seven in the world. One of the best movers on tour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was lucky enough to be in his, his um, you know, his, you know, academy, so to speak, when I first moved over. And he was able to do that in a minute, which was okay. ridiculous. So it was just like, oh, but, but what it was, it was light, it was fast, it was, the lines were so straight. And, and that's what I think the modern game looks like. You know, the, the lines are so much more severe and so much yeah. straighter. So if you're moving to the front left, there's, in my opinion, it's just, you, your hips are facing the front left corner. If you're under pressure, I'm talking about, someone's taken in like a, a great counter drop or something. You just have to scramble completely straight. Your, your foot hits the floor at 45 degrees. You're, you're, you're probably going to be flicking the ball. If anything, you're not really going to have a huge amount of rotation and you know, you, you're just going to do a need must in that situation. So I found that that 32 corner really helps that. It just helps that brutal straight line <laughs> type kind of movement. And, and then I've got probably three or four things that are in between that. So if we look at those two ends of the spectrum, they're, they're, they're ones where I suppose you need a coach pointing and you have moments of speed, you have moments of lull. And you, in a way, I'm always challenging myself and challenging my players to go, is this a real world environment? Are we, 
are we training that you can take this and is it transferable to a match? You know, so, you know, I, I, come, I used to do that ghosting, you know, up and wide and round and there's, there's probably still a time and a place for it. Yeah. But how often does that happen in a match? That, that's always the question I'm asking. It will happen, but arguably that, 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 that wide-ish type ghosting possibly happens what five percent of the match ten percent sometimes yeah, yeah. so fine, well, that, that, that's due to the the, the speed of the game having uh, increased slightly hasn't correct it? yeah correct and and the speed of the and and the way the the, the the ball is just getting taken into the front of the court so much earlier now you yeah, know that that yeah. that you know i think the the days of you know cat and mouse for the back of the court you know the length is still impeccable in the day in the game we play and you, you can't argue that the length has got any worse but it's, it's being played much less. You know, when there's a half chance, that ball's getting rocketed in short. So yeah, <laughs> players' speed and players' agility have to, have to match up to that. Yeah, and that, then, um, that's a difficult thing for a Masters player like, like me. I mean, when the game <laughs> is up at that tempo, uh, I've got to tr- do my best to either attack first or just kind of keep, uh, keep the ball nice and high. Yes, yeah, yeah no, yeah. and geez, you, you, you won't believe how my lob game has improved so much in the last five years. Because <laughs> yeah, my, my, my ability to scramble those has just disappeared. I, I had to play in England junior um, during the summer, and it was like one of those hottest days. We had a great summer here, you know, 34 degrees or something ridiculous. And uh, man, honestly, I, I, I old man this guy to death because <laughs> it was just I, 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 like any time I played like below the service line, I was just on the back foot. So it was literally oh, like sure, an above yeah. the line game. Know, Reaction, yeah, so, reactions yeah, just aren't there any, uh, like they I used know. Now, I, I'd like to get you know. just to a couple. I know you've got, uh, got to get back on court soon, uh, Jesse. So, so just let me get yeah. to a few of the, the listeners' questions. Uh, one guy uh, you might know of uh, Squash Stories on Facebook. His name is... Yes, yeah, I lo- love his stuff. And so, yeah, really yeah. creative stuff. I love it. Yeah, uh, he has a question uh, uh, about um, deception. Uh, how do you teach okay. uh, a player to be more deceptive? To which uh, one of the other uh, listeners, Spencer Harris, replied, get to the ball early and pray for a, Be- a Brett Martin-like uh, wrist. So, uh, <laughs> I saw that you had a post on uh, Twitter a few months back about holding the ball uh, yes. back in April, I think. And what, what would yeah. you, uh, how would you uh, reply to that uh, question? Yeah, look, deception is, is, is sometimes the holy grail, isn't it? A lot of people are like, oh, teach me deception and, and, yeah. and I've got it. So, um, yeah, listen, it was one of my uh, weaker areas of my game when I was a player. I managed to develop a little bit throughout the middle and later end of the career. And, and I, I think I coach it okay now. Um, so, yeah, I did, did quite an interesting playlist on squash heels uh, based on the holes. And I, I've got, again, two broad areas. Um, I think what Spencer alluded to is, is, is pretty close, if I'm honest. Um, I, I prescribe a little bit more to the fact of exploding onto the ball really early. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea about freezing. I, I love trying to freeze my base. So I get there. I freeze my base. I've got my racket up really early. I've frozen my racket. And I just, I literally wait as long as I can to the point that that ball has almost reached the second bounce. And because for me, one of the frameworks of good deception is your opponent tends to mimic your movements. You know, it's, it's a natural thing that happens in squash. So, you know, if, if I can almost sprint into a part, stop my, my base, hold my racket still, arguably my opponent's going to be in exactly that position on the tee. They would have hustled to the tee because they see me moving quick. So they go to the tee quick. Now I freeze. They have to freeze. And I believe that's the damage done. I, I believe now actually the execution of the shot can stay relatively simple because 
you've you've got them where their movement is. You you've 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 frozen their movement, and arguably there's 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 a lot of gaps now. There's a lot of spaces. So this type of deception I'm talking about is not as necessarily deceptive as uh, a massively strong wrist, which which I'll come on to in a sec. But it's more along the lines of using your movement, using your your presence to stop your opponent, and then you know pushing in a little drop or just holding and then popping the ball down the line. So the execution, in my opinion, doesn't need to be massive. So right. I, I used to try to do that a lot, and, and especially my front forehand, uh, I, I thought I was quite good. I used to get on the ball quick, hold, and just yeah. push in this drop. And for someone well, to be static and then go for a drop is a really hard move. I think to uh, all, all we have to do is look back to that generation that we talked to earlier, a guy like Peter Nickel, who back at his you know, when he was beating Jahang, uh, Jan Shir Khan, uh, it was pretty much a length, 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 length. But then when he started yeah. to have uh, more success against Jonathan, there was that little uh, backhand uh, flick yeah. and forehand flick yeah. Yeah. front court that uh, it got yeah. him almost every time. It was, yeah. So, because again, maybe based on his movement onto the ball, maybe based on he had, he had played so many lengths previously that, that there was not an expectation <laughs> of it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. The, almost like then the second way I talk about deception is, is I suppose more what you would see from Amir Shabana or, or Jonathan Power, so to speak. It's, 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 it's in the hands, you know, it's, it's yeah. in this idea with hands and body shape. So the movement is a bit more connected. So the foot would go down almost at the same time as the swing comes through. So it's a little bit more connected. But I've heard Jonathan Powell talk about this, but I, and I've heard another few coaches. I love this idea about, you know, a, a relatively slow start to the swing. So I'd be coming in, I'd be lulling my swing. I'd almost be lulling my opponent into like, well, I'm just going to rhythm the shot. I'm just going to kind of take a nice rhythmical approach to it. But at the last moment, I might really accelerate the racket head speed. So I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd lull them in. You know, I I'd, just I'd, had I'd, in my mind uh, a, one, a Jonathan playing the ball there. Yes, did you? Yeah, that's that's what he does, doesn't he? He's able to kind of get that racket up quick, yeah. and then come on down, and then and then snap that wrist at the last second. You know, for me, and and that lull, and and there's, I think there's a video of it on on Squashfields where you see Peter Nichols thinking on the tee because Jonathan's lulled him in a bit, and and Peter's like spread his base, and then Jonathan just gone whip and whip that follow through, and then the ball's disappeared to the back, or he's flicked it low across the course, and and for me that would be the more I suppose, glamorous side of deception, you know, yeah. that, that looks yeah. amazing, beautiful. Yeah. Man, honestly, I, I look like such a mug when I try stuff like that. So um, I, I think I'm okay to coach it now, but I, I think the idea of, of the freezing base position is a bit more accessible in the short term. So if, you, if you're working with somebody who wants it, I prescribe to that to start. And then I start to encourage them to, to take that more lull and then the wrist kind of approach. And then the complete flip side would be the other way. Like you see Shabagi in the front right, he has that massive thunderous swing. You know, he has his, his racket face facing the floor. Yeah. And then he's able to kind of have a really quick back part of the swing and then almost just stops and blocks that ball in. And, and that's huge deception as well. So that's more of a quick start than like a, like a slow touch at the end. Right on. Now, uh, just to get through, uh, that was great stuff, uh, Jesse. Just to get through a couple more of these before you take off. Um, Brian, no, no, let's get through here. Uh, I see, I see Gary's joined us. Gary, he can hear us now. Uh, Gary, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? Welcome. Hello. Yeah, you missed, you missed the, uh, the intro that I gave for you earlier. Uh, I knew you weren't here, but uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, you've, uh, you've been given the, uh, the, 
the pseudonym or the, the name uh, episode 28 because you were at the 28th episode. So we'll just call you uh, 28. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, great to have you on. Uh, Jesse's been, uh, been great so far. So thanks a lot, Jesse. Just a couple more questions before you uh, take off. Um, uh, Hasib Taj had a couple of questions. Uh, what tactics do you think a, a tall player should employ against a shorter, faster player? And um, uh, he also had the question, what is the thought process of uh, great players in the fifth set tiebreaker, guys like uh, Power and John White, who would always pick one, or uh, Peter okay. Nickel, who would always pick three? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that's, going, that's going back now, having to choose a one or a three. One or in, three. In, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess it's, it's not like that anymore. But uh, I guess the question would be, you know, in that situation when it's uh, 10 all. How do you close it out? Yeah. 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 So okay. Back so um, first one about tall players. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, at, at any point, Gary, if if you've obviously got some advice as well, I'm 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 all ears. Um. So uh, a, a tall player playing a small player. That that's 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 an interesting one. Um. I would say so. If I'm playing a small player, and, and not that I'm tall, but but this is a, a whether you're tall or not. I think this is hopefully what you can prescribe to. Um, a small, quick player. Obviously, their biggest asset is is their speed. They're they're moving around the court. Their ability to kind of scramble and and hustle and harass. What I would say is is look at James Walshrop, how he's able to compete against those small kind of quick players. On a very simple term, I would say to to take away the asset of a small player would be to to have a, quite a lot of hold. So we just talked about hold and, and alluding to the idea of hold and disguise. Because if you can get a small player to to stop and start and stop and start, you you arguably take away one of their biggest assets. And I remember playing you know some small players and quick quick little nimble players. And as soon as I just started putting lots of hold in, it all of a sudden made their super strength disappear quite quick. So that would be. One bit of advice from there, um, you know, the tall player adding in the hold and using the tall player's asset, you know, a, a tall player, naturally, I would hope they would cover that key area well. I'd hope they would have a relatively big wingspan. So I would also encourage them to dominate that central area a little bit more, you know, to, to impose themselves, to really go, right, if you're small and, and you, you want to run, yeah, you, you're going to have to run around and you're going to have to work That's a tricky one, though, isn't it? That. I mean, I, I'm about 6'2", just over 6'2", and uh, that's what I, I always try to achieve. But uh, being tall, maybe a little bit slower uh, on the tee, it's a, maybe a bit tougher to sort of react quickly to, yeah. to, to, fat, to, to hard uh, – uh, slope uh, to hard shots that are coming across. Sure. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. Exactly. So I think you don't want to spit yourself up. I call it suicide volley. So when, when, when I encourage a player to dominate the team volley, a lot of the time they do suicide volleys as in they're just going to volley for the sake of volleying, whether that puts them in a good or a bad position. So right. I think you obviously want to, want to, want to hedge your bets at certain times. And, you, you know, if, if you played a, a, you know, a, a five out of 10, a six out of 10 shot, an average type shot, that your opponent can, you know, have not much pressure passing you, you know, don't, don't necessarily fight that battle. That, that, that's not a battle to fight on the T area. So, you know, I'll allude back to James Wallstrop. I, I think your accuracy levels need to be really on point if you're playing one of those quick players and if you want to dominate that T, you know, James is very deliberate with his, with his accuracy, with his long drops, with his, his obviously his deception and his hold. Yeah. And I think that allows... The of the ball as well. 
unbelievable. You know, playing playing a small player. You know, again, height. You know, there, there's a thought that okay, oh, you can lob a small player. Yes, you can. I, I think I think you want to lob even a big player. You don't necessarily have to prescribe the lob to a short player. You know, I think it's, a lob should be an ever present in 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 someone's arsenal. Um, so look, I, that that's how I would deal with it. Uh, Gary, how would you deal with that situation? I think maybe it's a stereotype, but I think you tend to find that um, taller players aren't quite as quick, so the hands aren't going to be as quick, the feet aren't going to be as quick. So sometimes just sort of speeding the game up and almost making it a little bit scrappy. You're putting the ball in and around and, and, and you're hitting a lot of sort of hard, low cross courts and, and just try and take them out of their rhythm. You tend to find that taller players want to dominate the tee, they want to use that volley. So if you don't let them play that kind of structured game, sometimes that's a good way just to take them out of their of their sort of uh, rhythm a little bit more. Uh, and, and, and are you, are you, are you talking about player. a quick player combating a tall player or a tall player combating a quick player? A quick player just combating right? a tall player in general, I think. Just as I right. say, I think it's often that, you know, you get the, the stereotype of the smaller player being a lot faster, a lot quicker than the taller players being a little bit slower. Um, so it's just trying to switch that. It's trying to play maybe a little bit faster against the tall players and then maybe a little bit slower against the, the sort of shorter, faster players. Mm. Yeah, mm. nice. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, just another one here from... Uh, so what about the second question? Do you want, should we answer the second oh, yes. one from... Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, again, my, my, my opinion in, I suppose, how people close out a game, how those top players are able to do it. I, it's a tricky one because I've tried a few different methods or, or encouraged a few different ways for people to try. I would say it's, it's weirdly, I could be wrong, it would be interesting to hear from these guys, I don't think they they put the amount of 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 weight on on it as maybe a spectator does. They, you know, yes, there's a pressure moment. Yes, it 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 could go wrong. But I believe they would they back themselves. You know, they would go right. We're at ten all in the first. I'm still gonna play. if that shot's on. I'm I'm gonna back myself. You know, there, there would probably be a little bit more risk reward. You know, negotiation going on. But I, I you know, when I've seen players lose it more than win it. They, they almost sit back and wait for the game to come to them. And for me, that, that's a dangerous place to be. I would say uh, Jonathan Power, John White, Peter Mickle, when they were able to convert at that point, they would, they, they would do things. They would do their normal processes. Just play their game to, maybe like, well, to the strengths yeah, of their game. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to a heightened degree going, well, if I'm going to volley, I'm going I'm to be a little higher on the tee. If I'm going to take it in short, I'm going to take it in short with a bit more purpose. You know, so that, that would be a little bit of the mindset I would encourage players to be in. If, if they get into those, those, those clutch moments in a game, you know, for me, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's backing yourself within your assets and your super yeah. strengths. Identify the strengths in your game and then, then sort of exaggerate it a bit. Yeah, because I think the odds over time would, would work out in your favor. You're not going to win 10 out of 10 doing that, but, you know, if you're starting to win 7 or 8 out of 10, you know, by backing yourself, you know, I think, I think you'd you, you take that any day. That's a good percentage. Uh, now, Ben, Ben Welton had a great question, and it's something that I think we'd all like to, to hear about it, the importance of solo practice. Um, what do you tell uh, your students, and, and how frequently do you uh, recommend a solo practice, maybe? What types of route, I guess, just uh, what type of routine would you uh, recommend? Gary, do you want to take this one? I think sometimes um, with, with solo practice, you know, you, you want to get on there and, and develop your technique and, and sort of work through your shots. Um, I'm always a big advocate of, of doing a little bit of, of sort of movement and, and sort of conditioning work in there as well to make it a little bit more realistic. I think yeah. with uh, 
with solo, it's easy just to sort of hit balls to yourself and you feel great because, you know, you're not out of breath and it's all nice and easy. I think if you incorporate, you know, maybe a little bit of ghosting, even some court sprints in there. So you might do, um, you know, set of, of 10 ghosts, rest for 20 seconds, repeat that two or three times and then spend a couple of minutes hitting the ball. Then you go back in, do your little bit of conditioning again. So you're, you're doing your solo, but while you're doing it, you're going to be a little bit fatigued in the same way that you would be when you're playing a match, making it more realistic. I agree. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, Maybe yeah, that, 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 test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be, be one way of doing it might be a little bit tougher, but yeah, it's, it's just, as I say, it's just trying to put yourself under a little bit of a physical duress and, and trying to make the, 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 the actual solo more applicable to your game. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree. There, there's that, that little physical element is, is important. I suppose that depends on, on different players. I suppose if you work with a high-level player at a different part of their week or their season you know sometimes the solo might just be more i just want to feel my rhythm in my hands yeah but you know during during the summertime it might be more right okay five minutes of hitting to three minutes worth of physical you know so so the balance would be a little bit more kind of like for like which 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 i think definitely i encourage um a couple of things i do in in, in all in my solos which i encourage i've I've got probably maybe it's made two or three sides long and it's pretty much a bit of a brain dump. I've, I've put, put like almost everything I've ever done in a solo or heard people doing a solo on a piece of paper. And, but then I've broken it up into little sections and it's along the lines, again, two extremities would be along the lines of a lot of rhythm and flow. So, you know, rolling drive to your, to yourself, you know, just timing it, just, just letting it flow. And then on the other end of the spectrum would be more, like quite frantic, like right, I'm at the front of the court. I'm, I'm actually just kind of, I'm, I'm almost just kind of going for mix. I'm, I'm, I've got a bit of pre-play. I'm, I'm just letting myself ex- express myself completely. And, and then I think there's loads of bits in between there where you can do certain skill challenges, certain skill tests with, with, with scoring going, right, I need to get 25 of these in less than a minute. Um, and, and yeah, so, so, and, and what I encourage when, I, when I've shown uh, my solo to a player, so, so I've got, I think it's like five or six blocks. And actually, in between those blocks, so alluding to what Gary does as well, I've, I've put five or six physical things in there as well. So whether it's some just basic court sprints, whether it's some speed ghosting, whether it's some leg blast or core challenge. And I basically encourage my players to go, right, pick, pick what you want. You know, right, here's your big list. I know on any given day, if you want to work on a specific thing, you know, highlight a few things you want to work on, you know, take that piece of paper on court, highlight some of your physical stuff. And, you know, it can be, I think I've timed it, that, that whole piece of paper I've got from start to finish, I think it's about two hours, 15 minutes. So, you okay. know, you're not going to necessarily do a two hour, 15 minute no. solo, but you are, you're going to maybe say, right, I've got 30 minutes, I've got 40 minutes. Here's my, I don't know, seven or eight hitting things. And here's my three or four physical things that I could probably do in that short space of time. Um, so yeah, for me, it's a variation of rhythm because I think like Gary alluded to, can, can it be specific to the game? Can you get stuff more specific to match play? And, and that's the thing I'm always trying to challenge myself as a coach and as a player is going, yeah, you might be able to hit 100 rolling drives down the line, but when do you ever feel like that in a match? When do you ever have that no pressure or you know, there's no physical edge to it or there's no time constraint you know, so yeah, that, that would that would be my recommendation is, is having a broad range of stuff and then picking and choosing yeah. at certain times what to focus on. Yeah, I think what you what you mentioned there, uh, both both the both you guys uh, having uh, having a list of things and going on to going on to the court and maybe choosing what you're going to do as opposed to I think what maybe many of us do is just hit the ball around. Yes, yeah, yeah, very unspecific, I suppose, isn't it? 
Yeah. Uh, one more, uh, uh, Jesse, before you go, and I uh, really appreciate your time. Um, Christian Maddox uh, had a question about, uh, I think it's quite an interesting one, how important it is to practice shots that are fed directly at you these days, because they seem to come up mm. in uh, a lot of matches. Um, is that something that um, maybe you discuss with your players or, or maybe even... Yeah. So yeah, definitely. I, I um, and I said even these days, I, I don't even know if it's as re- relevant these days as it was before. Because I remember as a young teenager, my coach would put me on the tee. He'd be in the front right, and I suppose especially maybe like growing up in that hotter climate where the ball was a bit faster and it was very easy to sit back and and just you know let the ball go to the back. And he would just basically hack the ball down the middle of the court at my body, you know, on onto my toes towards my head. And I would have to just learn to block it back to the where he was standing, just like just feather the ball back in. Yeah. Um, I, I do that session a lot now with my players. I, I just get them on the tee and I, I just, you know, could be six, seven, eight minutes and I'm just pumping the ball at them. So they, and, they must love yeah, that. You know, Oh well, yeah, that, well like I, I frame it up well. I think I think I think they hate the first minute or two, and yeah. then when they realise kind of like what it's doing for them, it, it then really works Can well. And, uh, wash. Yes, exactly that. Just yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we can get a ball machine doing that at some point as well. So, yeah. and um, so yeah, no, I I think it's it's it's. I was lucky enough to practice it previously, so I think it's it's massively relevant now as well. And then another one that 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 is similar. So. Um, I think I split the court up into thirds. So I, I kind of talk about the front third, the middle third, and the back third. And I'm in the back of the court, and, and I've got my students on the tee. And I just go, right, so I'm just going to bring a massive storm to you now. So I'm at the back, and I'm actually just going for, for everything. they in the middle third, right? And I'm going to hit the ball roughly to the middle third every shot but it can be coming in any direction whatsoever. I'm going for cross-court nicks. I'm going for down the middle. I'm going for skid boasts. And it's just to see how they can absorb it. You know, I wouldn't right. do a whole session on that, but it's just, just the fact of, you know what, don't be scared of it. It's going to come at you in the middle. Don't That's panic. Sure. Don't tense the grip up. You know, just, just ease it off your feet. Just, just top spin it in if you need to. Find a way to, to tuck the ball up when, when it's completely tied up. So, yeah, those are my, my couple of things, and, and I'm sure there's a whole lot more. Uh, within what, do you, what do you think about that, Gary? So, sounds like pretty sound uh, intel there. Yeah, I think it ties in a little bit with what, what we said in the previous answer about making things specific. I think sometimes, you know, you see players practice, they're being fed the ball, or, or even when they're doing the ghosting, and it's all sort of nice and rhythmic, and it's front corner, back corner, sides, and... You know, when you play the game, it's not as sort of clear-cut as that. It's not as sort of nicely laid out. So even, you know, if, if I'm putting together a little ghosting drill, we might scatter a few balls randomly to make it more closely replicate the demands of the game. And the same thing there with what Jesse's saying about feeding balls a little bit more randomly, because that's what's going to happen. You know, you're not going to play many players where it's all nice and neat and tidy. You know, certainly at a club level, it is going to be scrappy. So you've got to practice dealing with balls in those areas. And you've also got to practice moving into sort of slightly different areas sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, Jesse, uh, you better run off. You've got to get, you've got to hit the court soon, don't you? That's fine. Yeah, I've got to buy, I've still got maybe 10, 15 minutes, but if you, if you want me to go, I'm happy to go. No, I don't I want you to go. I mean, it, it's been great now that we've got uh, Gary in as well. Uh, you can stick, stick around for as long as you can. Cool. I've, um, I've, got, I've got 10 more minutes. So yeah, let's, let's okay. keep chatting and I'm sure I'm gonna, Gary... Uh, some of the questions here are more, more Gary-focused uh, now because I got through most of the, uh, the technical stuff. Uh, not that Gary doesn't have technical uh, intel, right? <laughs> You've seen me play, haven't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> now, 
uh, one, one of our uh, listeners, uh, Steve, uh, I think his name is Fenich or French, uh, he, he asks, uh, what do you do when fatigue begins to f- set in during a match? Uh, uh, it's kind of a broad, uh, broad question, but um, I guess there are certain things. I mean, I, I know for me anyways, I kind of try to slow things down in every way possible, whether that's uh, in between points or, you know, on the tee, slow it down, maybe, uh, you know, try, try to attack a little bit earlier. Um, what, yeah, what would you say to that, Gary? Yeah, I mean, some, sometimes it's a matter of just trying to preserve your energy by slowing the game down, by, you know, using a slightly higher on the front wall, slightly a sort of lesser pace. Um, and you've got your, your, your dark hearts as well, where it comes to, you know, tying your laces <laughs> up between the points and, you know, taking a little bit longer to talk to the ref between. I mean, you, you see that happen a lot at all levels. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of just trying to find that, that, that way to, to take... Um, a little bit of time to recover. And I think as well what's important is to remember that your opponent's probably feeling the same. Some people hide it better than others. But the chances are if you're, you know, suffering from a little bit of fatigue and it's into that fourth, fifth game, you know, your opponent's probably there as well. And it sometimes becomes a, a mental battle just to keep going and, and, you know, hope that they're going to be feeling it worse and they're going to break down before you. Yeah, you've got to may- maybe just try not to show it so much in your face and in your body language. Is that something you might... Uh... You know, is that something you try to teach your, your young juniors, uh, Jesse? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. one, of those, one of those things where you, you want to develop that poker face, don't you? You see some yeah. players and, you know, I bet I think it's interesting now with the PSA when they're showing heart rates and things like that. You can see two players that, I mean, heart rate doesn't give you the complete picture, but you can see they're roughly the same sort of intensity there. And one of them, you know, is going to look absolutely shattered and panting and, and the other might look fine, but, you know, they're both working hard. You know, the body's got a limit that it can't go beyond. And if you can hide that better, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're not feeling it as bad. Oh, for sure. That, yeah, that heart no, rate. I, uh, sorry, sorry, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you carry on. No, no, carry on. Gary, Gary. No, I was just going to say the heart rate, uh, you know, having that uh, intel available to, to us on squash skills, or squash uh, TV, um, that, that may that may uh, factor into actual, actual intel during match play, uh, wouldn't you think? I mean, a, a coach gets a hold of that information and says, okay, um, this guy's, his heart rate's through the roof. You, could, you know, keep it, keep it going, you know? Yeah, because you know like, I, mean? I think tactically, tactically you, you, can, you can make some uh, more informed decisions based on that. So, yeah, like I think Gary, Gary hit the nail on the head in regard to your feeling it, but you know what, if you're feeling it, have a look at your opponent because the, the chances are they are going to be feeling it too big time. And um, I suppose, I don't know, definitely the, the poker face has to come into it. And, and I encourage my players, you know, just however tough you're feeling, just, you know, don't, don't put your hands on your knees, you know, little things like that. Yeah. You know, take a little bit of extra time to wipe your hand on the wall, slow the breathing down. Um, and I suppose tactically, there's something I, because again, there's, there's at a certain point, there's, there's, it sounds a bit harsh, but there's no point extending the rallies because, you, you know, all, all that can do sometimes is just grind you into even more of a pulp. You know, I, I've seen it happen quite a few times and happened actually at a tournament I was running this weekend and one of my players was playing and, and, and he was doing well and he was 2-1 up, but then you could see he was really hurting. And he just tried to, he, he tried to play the long game. He tried to play even longer and more depth. And, and what ended up happening, he just ended up, you know, actually slowly grinding himself down. So I would say if that fatigue is setting in, there might be a little potential to 
slightly elevate your risk, but without, you know, completely kind of throwing it all out, all out the window where, you know, you might arguably get a little bit higher up on the tee. Yeah, it's going to burn a bit more, but if, if it comes off, you can get and get that volley drop in, you know, yeah. all of a sudden the rally is a little bit shorter. You snuck a point, but now your opponent's thinking, oh, crikey, he's tired, but he's still playing a positive type game. So I think uh, tactically it's, it's, it's a really interesting territory because, yeah, again, I felt it where I've gone, okay, I'm tired and I'm going to play a longer game. But actually, all it does is just slowly grind you into a pulp. So, yeah, it's a very fine balance between those two, though. Is there anything magical uh, that, that we could do between games? Over to you, Gary. Is there, is there any supplement type stuff, you think? So you mean like in between the sort of breaks between games? To, yeah, to yeah. if you were in a tournament in a match, you get two minutes. Uh, you know, you just sit down, you drink it. You know, you get some fluids in, into you. Um, so anything sort of just maybe controlled breathing, uh, things like that? Uh, I think, I think that's, that's a huge thing, the breathing. You know, no matter how tired you are and everything that's going on, you know, you, you can control your breathing to some extent to being aware of your breathing and then just trying to slow, you know, whether you take it the deep breaths in for six seconds and out for six seconds actually consciously slowing the breathing down and you'll find that will often sort of bring everything else down at the same time um mm. i think a little psychological trick that's useful as well sometimes is, is to change your shirt you know if you're yeah. sweating and you're dripping and, and everything else sometimes just putting that fresh shirt on taking those couple of deep breaths you'd be surprised how much of a difference that that can actually make you know physically and mentally Oh, yeah, sure. alluding alluding to the breathing, I, 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 I'm so interested in the breathing. I think it's it's something that that actually when you say to someone breathe and and it can actually be quite um, uh, undervalued. It, it almost feels like yeah. a bit fluffy. It's like oh it's, oh, it's just breathing. Of course, I'm breathing. But um, there was just a little bit of research. And what I, what I was really interested in, you know, those cross country skiers. You know, those guys that do the cross country skiing, and then they've got to get down and they've got to shoot the target. Yeah, and right. uh, yeah. the, Biathlon, that's it. Those, like, for, so, so for me, I, I, I don't know, it was just obviously a bit of ignorance, but I just assumed that, that they were able, you know, getting their heart rate to maximum and they were able to drop their heart rate to, you know, 80 beats per minute, for example, before they could shoot because there was a bit of a, a myth that they would, they would pull the trigger in between heartbeats. And if your heartbeat's 170 BPM, you, it's almost impossible to pull a trigger between that. And, and I actually read the research and actually said, nope, they, these guys don't lower their heart rates to superhuman degrees. They said it's all about breathing. They just said, actually, the biggest thing that these guys can do, their heart rates are still relatively high when they're shooting. There's still a little bit of anxiety and stress going on. But they said they, they, they really have gone into the depths of proper breathing and just, you know, diaphragm breathing, you know, they're, they're like they're not the breathing from in and out of the lungs where you're almost hyperventilating, just getting them to encourage their breathing from really deep in their diaphragm, really deep in their stomach. So that's a whole podcast, yeah, when I, I started reading uh, that's a podcast episode in and of itself, I think, you know, visualization. <laughs> I know. Because a, a lot yeah, of it, to me, it's visualizing it on court. You get all, not stressed out, but you're, you may be panicked and uh, that affects breathing, obviously. But if you can kind of visualize slowing things down and uh, that effect will affect your breathing in a, in a positive way. Yeah, and they said with those skiers, as they're coming in, I think it's something anywhere between 20 and 50 meters away from when they have to get in position. They actually, they, they, they're not trying to do that as quick as possible. Actually, they're willing to lose a few seconds of time, but they, they dip into a visualization process. As they're coming in, just before they get down, they're visualizing the target, they're getting control of their breathing. And actually, by the time they lie down and take the shot, they've already played it in their mind. You know? So yeah, again, yeah. Jerry, the, 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 the visualization is, is a huge topic, isn't it? Definitely. Absolutely. 
Good. Yeah. Um, guys, I, is it okay? I will, I will bid my farewell to that. That's good. Well, Jesse, uh, it was really, really great having you on and uh, lots of great intel there. All the best uh, with, your, with your squash academy uh, and uh, with your coaching, you. your juniors. Is, uh, you, uh, do you have any social media platform or anything you want to, uh, you want to uh, promote? Before you head out, sure, yeah, I, of course. I, listen, thank you very much for for asking me to be on. First and foremost, it's it's been insightful, and, and may, I hopefully you get the sense that I I just love talking utter nonsense oh, about sports. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, great. in regards to social media, um, Twitter and Facebook are probably the two easiest ones. Um, Twitter is at JE Squash Academy, so quite a long one. Um, and Facebook, if you just search for Jesse Engelbrecht Squash Academy, um, and yeah, those, those are the best ways if anyone wants to get in touch or you know just talk about squash or even even I'm I, happy to share any of those. Um, some like I said I've got a lot of documents written down. You know, I'm I'm all for sharing this type of stuff. So yeah, happy days. Twitter, Facebook, those are probably the two best platforms. And obviously, uh, you're on the squash skills as well. So uh, we we yeah. like your stuff. Yeah, so, Go, go, go watch some videos on there. And uh, yeah, they're all the Zero to Hero playlists have just come out quite recently. So hopefully that helps some of the beginners. But um, listen, Jerry, good luck for the, the podcast. Gary, I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon at some point as well. And uh, yeah, let's touch base in, in a few weeks time. Good to speak. Thanks, Jesse. Jesse. Go. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. And Gary, uh, thanks for, again, thanks for coming on. Now, uh, I've got a couple. No yeah. Um, sorry about that. Uh, there, there was a bit of a change uh, in the timing earlier. So uh, yeah, I, I saw the link, but I hadn't actually seen the emails. It just come up in my inbox as a, as a calendar link. It wasn't until, until about 20 minutes ago when I actually saw the email. Yeah, no problem. But uh, now I've got a, a question here about, um, uh, actually, it's a quote from, I think it was on Twitter from you, uh, working on squash-specific uh, stamina is important. There needs to be a balance uh, with speed, stability, and movement. Now, for the full, uh, my question I guess it's just for, for the regular player. For the full-time player, obviously, it's a, a bit more manageable given the time that you, you would have through the day to do it. But uh, mm. how about for the sort of uh, regular person with, with a full-time job or full-time study uh, obligations, how would you schedule uh, your squash around uh, get, given those, uh, given those uh, things that, that you would have to do normally in, in a day? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's tough it's, it's definitely a question I get asked a lot about how to actually structure and, and schedule your training um, and, and it is very different for, for someone that isn't playing full time and it's difficult to give a, a, an outright answer though because everybody's circumstances are going to be slightly different everybody's going to have different time availability everyone's going to have different levels of commitment they're going to have different strengths and weaknesses um, what, what I generally say I mean, this is certainly a, a, an issue that we're looking to, to cover on squash skills at some point in terms of a a more complete article but but just sort of general advice is to try and squeeze in a little bit of extra work um in and around your court time so for a lot of people family commitments for instance work commitments they might literally have three sessions a week three you know one hour sessions where they're going to get on court um and play so if you're going to try and develop any aspect of your conditioning it's trying to squeeze a little bit extra here and there so for example if you've got an hour blocked out you know, 45 minutes of that is going to be your squash, but then trying to get in the first sort of five, six minutes as part of your warm up, yeah. doing a little bit of speed work. So, you, you know, you're going to practice a few short, sharp efforts. You know, when we're working speed, we have to work very, very high intensity, uh, but very, very short dur duration. So, that could be like the last part of your warm up and do your sort of basic um, sort of pulse raising and mobility, and then do a little bit of, of say, ghosting, but working absolutely flat out for five, six reps. 
and then rest him for 30, 40 seconds. So you're doing a few short, sharp bursts and that will then help develop a little bit of speed. At the end of the session, you might take again five, 10 minutes um, and do a few sets of, of course, sprints. It might be, you know, three sets of 20 sprints with a minute between. So you get a, a little bit of, a, of an endurance benefit. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just trying to make the, the, the best use of, of your time that you can isolating and highlighting what are your biggest weaknesses and, and what you need to work on and just trying to squeeze that into your schedule. You know, maybe at home you could do a little bit of strength work. You could work on some rear elevated split squats. You know, you could do a little bit of sort of body work, uh, body weight work. Um, it, it's always going to be harder for, for the non-full-time, you know, for, for the amateur player. Yeah. There's certainly ways that you can manipulate the time you've got available to actually get a little bit of a, uh, additional conditioning work in i'll tell you one thing uh, i did uh, just a, a few days ago i was in the gym and i didn't have a lot of time but uh, there was no one in there and there was a bit of space so i kind of uh, mapped out a, a short it, it was a squash court but it was just from the tee it would be like two steps but it was a ghosting uh, session and uh, yeah. i did uh, i did like eight eight uh, sets of of this thing and uh, for a day for two days, I was so sore, but I think it's something that I'll, I'll, I'll try to do uh, more regularly. And then following that, I did some bike sprints, but uh, I think I utilized my time well, given you know the circumstances uh, where I was and what I wanted to do. I think that's kind yeah, of if getting. Yeah, if you've got access to a gym and, and you know, you're looking to do some work in there specific to your squash, then, then of course, you know, if you can get in there and do some bike sprints or, you know, a lot of gyms will have a, a studio facility that you might be able to use to mark out, you know, your, your sort of four corners of a court. Uh, you know, I'm talking more about the actual uh, scheduling uh, in terms of making the best use of your time in the gym. Again, it comes down to, to sort of a couple of the answers we've already spoke about, trying to make it specific. The more specific you can make your training to your game, um, you know, the more beneficial it's going to be. Yeah, for sure. Now, you, you did mention uh, just a minute or so ago about uh, the warm-up, and I noticed uh, also you had a video uh, on squash skills recently on the warm-up. Um, mm. And I, I really, uh, just in the last few years, I've, I've just maybe because I'm getting older and, and it takes me longer to, to actually get into a match and get warmed up, but I think uh, regardless, uh, how critical is, the, is a proper warm-up and uh, take us through what you would describe as a proper pre-match warm-up. I know everyone has a different time. I mean, Nick Matthew might warm up for an hour before a match. Uh, yeah. You hear you know, all these stories. But uh, to me, anyways, I, I've just found I should you know, not just stretch, but uh, get, out, get on the bike, do a few bike sprints, or you know, uh, do some you know, skipping 15, 20 minutes at least, get, get a good sweat going. Yeah, I think the warm-up is absolutely critical and it's something that, that I highlight with, with the athletes I work with and, and we've spoken about it quite a lot recently on squash skills. Um, I think most people think about the warm-up primarily in terms of avoiding injury and, and that's true to some extent. There are certain injuries that are going to be you know, lessened by being fully warm and fully mobile. But then on the other hand, a lot of injuries you get on a squash court are that kind of sudden trauma injuries where you turn your ankle, you slip and... Unfortunately, it doesn't matter how warmed up you are, you're still going to be susceptible to that. So it's trying to think about the warm-up more in terms of performance enhancement. You know, I get asked questions about what supplement or what training regime. You know, I can tell you, if you warm up properly and you go through a proper schedule before you play or before you train, that's going to improve your performance by anything from sort of 5%, 10% when you're talking about endurance and speed and all the other sort of physical elements. 
So if I told you, you know, here's a pill that's going to improve your performance by five, ten percent, you know, most people would bite your hand off. Doing a proper warm up is, you know, almost that that magic pill. It will make a big difference. Mm. I think if players are saying they struggle for time, and you know, again, which is fair enough. But if you're playing squash for 45, 50 minutes, you, you've got your court booked. If you go on cold and just start playing straight away, you know, you're not going to play at your best. You're probably not going to enjoy it as much. It's going to be a little bit of a, you know, it's going to be a little bit frustrating sometimes because it takes a while to get going. And just by well, taking I that think, first... I think a lot of people, they, just, they think the warm-up is actually when you're hitting the ball before the yeah. game. <laughs> yeah, the lock-up is their warm-up. And yeah. no, you know, if you can get there a little bit earlier or just spend the first five minutes going through a, you know, a basic warm-up routine, which I'll sort of go on to in a minute. Um, yeah, the, the, the knock-up. I mean, worst-case scenario, you, you, you arrive at the court, bang on time, all you've got is the knock-up. Try and actually physically think about that then. So during the knock-up, take a few short balls and put a drop in so you move quickly to the front of the court or, or a boast. Don't just sort of stand there and whack the ball and, and not actually think about your physical warm-up. It's, again, it just comes to using your time the best way you can and... and yeah, it's, it's not always possible to do a, a full, solid warm-up routine, but you, you've got to do something. You can't just walk on court and expect to play at your best um, without any sort of preparation. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I noticed, I think it was in the video that you posted, uh, uh, the one on squash goes, I think it was Adrian Waller, who, uh, is that correct, who was in the video? Yeah, that was. I mean, the uh, young fellow looks very, very fit, but it, it looked like a really an effective warm-up. Um, what I like to do is uh, I'll try to get to the to the court maybe a bit early. I might do like you said earlier, maybe uh, three sets of uh, uh, ten ten uh, court sprints. Uh, do maybe do a quick some mm. ghosting, uh, stretch out the adductors mm. a, a little bit, um, uh, get the back okay, and then 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 start the knock up. <laughs> yeah, the, the warm has to be individualized to you. Everyone's going to be sort of slightly different in their requirements. But you want to follow, I always say, you know, whatever you do for your warm-up, it needs to follow the same three stages. So you want to start with what we would call an initial pulse raiser. So that's just sort of light, might be jogging, it might be a bit of sidestepping, a bit of skipping. So if I've got, you know, luxury of a court to, to warm up and I've got my 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is you're going to be using, just starting for the first couple of minutes, gradually increasing the heart rate, gradually increasing the core temperature just by starting very light and then gradually sort of speeding it up slowly it might be a little bit of very light ghosting or skipping once you feel that you've kind of got that initial warmth and then you've got that sort of slight pulse raise then the second stage is where we go into our mobility and our activation so instead of just sort of standing still and doing our static stretches which used to be the the sort of uh, popular thing to do it, it's been shown in the research that it's better to do a dynamic mobility set so that could be things like controlled leg swings or, or lunges or sort of exaggerated steps it's, it's things that are going to mobilize the joints without just standing still and stretching statically um, the activation stuff again might be things like sort of glute bridges so you're trying to get those glutes firing it could be you know a couple of squat jumps again just to get those muscles working um, and then if you've done that sort of second phase dynamically, you know, your, your pulse rate will stay a little bit elevated as well. You don't just drop back down to zero. And that leads you into your third and final part of your warm up, which is your, your secondary pulse raise, or what we would call our, our specific pulse raiser. So now we're going into something a lot more game uh, specific. Like it could be shuttle runs, it could be court sprints, it could be ghosting. So a couple of minutes there where you're working at a much higher, uh, higher tempo. 
So when you then step on the court for your game or your training, you're ready to go. You're a little bit out of breath, you're sweaty, but you're ready to then hit the ground running. Oh, for sure. That, I mean, that's something that I really, I think a lot of people take for granted that, you know, they can just show yeah. up, uh, maybe yeah. hit a few length balls. Okay, my length is good. My drop shots are good. But, uh, you know, are you actually ready to, to get to hit the ground running and with the proper warm up? Yeah. Like Especially you said, as, yeah. as you get older, it's, it's as you get older, it becomes even more important. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Now you mentioned uh, uh, something about a magic pill uh, earlier on. Um, uh, uh, the benefits of creatine. I, I, I took uh, you. You you've posted a few things about creatine, and I've had a few mm-hmm. friends who've uh, raved about it as well. Uh, obviously, that amongst other uh, nutritional supplements is going to help anybody. But uh, when I tried the creatine, I tried it. Maybe I I, I did it wrong, or maybe it was. Uh, um, maybe the, the 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 stuff that I was taking wasn't quite designed for someone like me, but I started. I, I got some cramping uh, as a result of it. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not sure, um, but anyways, you you there is val. I know I know the value of creatine, but uh, what would you say uh, for you are the are the benefits of creatine for for squash was because I don't want to dismiss it. Obviously, uh, it, it, it's quite uh, useful for for the right person. Yeah, I think creatine is, is one of the most studied sports supplements out there. Um, I think supplements get a little bit misunderstood sometimes. You know, they're, they're, you know the, 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 the clue is in the name. We, we want to have a good sort of basic nutrition plan, a healthy diet, but we can then supplement that with, you know, other, other substances that, that, that might boost our performance or sort of support our health. And, you know, there's a huge amount of research on, on creatine, not just in terms of its performance enhancement, but also starting to discover sort of more health benefits as well that are coming out. Um, creatine is, is a naturally occurring substance. Creatine is, is a sort of energy source we use for our short, sharp burst efforts, our sprints. So that's where it applies very much to squash because that kind of creatine phosphate energy system is one that we utilize repeatedly in squash. So the ability to recharge that um, by taking a, a creatine supplement, it, it can certainly have benefits. But I think as, as you've sort of maybe realized yourself, it's, it's different for every individual. Some people are going to be high responders. Some people are going to be low responders. That would depend on, you know, your natural levels of creatine. That would depend on the sort of dosage raising that you use. Um, so, and again, you know, the side effects, um, creatine has been studied for, for a lot of years. There's no sort of long-term negative sort of health aspects there. Uh, but again, yeah, because of the way that it works, you know, you can retain water. Some people get cramps. Some people do get um, stomach upset. So, it's like anything, you've got to try it out for yourself and, and see how it works for you. But there certainly is a lot of good research surrounding creatine, which you know a lot of other sports supplements haven't got. Most supplements you know, are nowhere near as, as sort of researched and as clear-cut as, as creatine is. Right. Now, uh, just in terms of uh, pre-match uh, nutrition, say uh, mm. I have a match uh, in, a, in a few hours, uh, what, I guess obviously you want to make sure you're hydrated. Uh, mm. Um, what would you sort of uh, uh, advise in terms of pre-match uh, preparation leading like the day of a, of a match leading up to, uh, to that game? Yeah, there's different strategies you can use. Um, I think part of the problem though is, is thinking about it just as, right, what can I do before in, in this couple of hours before my game or before my training session? Nutrition is one of those things that needs to be on point every day. What you've eaten for the three, four, five days leading up to that game or that session 
that's just as important. Um, you know, you, you can do the best things possible on the day, but you still want to be getting everything right um, full time. Otherwise, you know, you, you're just going to be fighting fires in the short term. I think, again, it's this individualized. Some people like to have something maybe three hours, two hours. I wouldn't say anything less than one hour. Most people aren't going to digest their food and, and be able to utilize it in less than an hour. Um, so for most people, yeah, around about two, two and a half hours, just getting some kind of a kind of a complex carbohydrate um, yep. sort of food. Take. So that could be oats with your porridge in the morning. It could be some kind of wholemeal pasta or some brown rice. You just don't advise a, a cow chocula in the morning, Gary? Uh, I always... I always say that if your um, if your breakfast here has got a picture of a cartoon rabbit on the front, then it's probably not the uh, the healthiest one to use. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like um, oats and, as I say, sort of grains and things like yeah. that that are going to give you that sustained energy release um, leading up into your your session. Um, the other one that I say, you know, I said there's no shortcuts, but what what does work well if you are limited and you haven't had time to, to do what you want to do certainly make sure you're well hydrated that's massively important yeah. getting some water um but caffeine's very good just for that sort of short-term boost if you yeah, are that's what i was going to ask you like i've been uh i think a lot of people you know if you, they they're working or you know you have families you tend to play earlier in the day yeah um and uh i i've been playing quite early in the mornings uh, coffee uh like bring a coffee to the court with you is that all right Definitely. I, I think caffeine, for some reason, gets a bit of a bad rap. Um, and yeah, some people, you do become a little bit reliant on your, on your morning coffee. And some people, you know, in a working environment, kind of almost feel it's a, a bit of an, a, an addiction. But it's not an addiction in the true sense of the word. If you are used to having caffeine every day and you don't have it for a day or two, yeah, you'll feel it. But that will very quickly wash out of your system. I think using caffeine strategically, um, thinking about actually getting a certain amount, you know, finding what amount works best for you. Um, I, I don't know what, depending on what coffee you drink, how much caffeine is in it, but anywhere between sort of two, three milligrams per kilogram of body weight for most people, that's enough caffeine to have a, you know, a serious and, and noticeable effect on your, on your alertness and your, mm -hmm. you know, your sort of level of performance. But there, there's some research that shows that caffeine can almost dampen the, 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 the or pain response to exercise so it allows you to work harder for longer so that is a very yeah. useful supplement in that sense that's awesome yeah i didn't know that uh but i do uh, what i'll do is i'll just bring i'll drop by starbucks get a, I, I usually get a black coffee uh just drink it yeah. black and uh Try to avoid the sort of sugary and the syrups and all that kind of no stuff you know, the, the closer you can yeah the closer you can get it to its uh pure form the better if you're sort of having in a mocha frappa spicy Chino, whatever they call these things now, then it's, <laughs> it's not really coffee anymore, is it? It's like a, yeah. like a milkshake by that point. Exactly. Well, Gary, uh, is there anything, uh, what, what do you have uh, in the hopper now, so to speak, uh, with squash skills coming up? Any, I know you've got your warm-up video that was just posted recently. Anything, mm -hmm. uh, anything uh, exciting that we can look forward to? Yeah, we're just working. Um, I'm sure Jesse mentioned the hero to zero. <laughs> zero to hero would probably work better, wouldn't it? Zero to hero. Um, and just sort of looking at, I, th I think one of the questions we spoke about earlier about, you know, how to tailor your training regime as a, as a sort of recreational amateur level player. I think a lot yeah. of the content that we're looking to produce um, or I'm looking to produce for the site is just trying to cover that a little bit more. We, we do get that question a lot about, you know, great, we've got all this stuff on the site, all these great exercises, sessions, you know, how do I fit it all in? And I think as, as a, 
you know, an amateur level player, that, that scheduling is really important. It's making sure you address the most important elements. So certainly the stuff that I'm looking to put together for squash skills over the next few months is, is going to be looking at that a little bit more, making it a little bit more tailored towards the, the, the sort of amateur player that hasn't got the luxury of lots of time and, and lots of training sessions in the same way a, a pro player would have. Yeah, and I think uh, given the, po- the, the popularity recently over the last couple of years, but especially uh, really uh, quite recently of uh, Master Squash. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I noticed, uh, you, I think there, there is some, uh, some uh, Master-specific uh, squash still stuff out there. Is that something mm-hmm. uh, you guys are going to be looking at more uh, carefully as well, g- given the given the resurgence of uh, in popularity of the Masters game? Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that's a, a real big um, sort of growing element of the sport and that's certainly something that we want to, you know, cover with squash skills. We, we've got a couple of um, articles up there. If you sort of search for Masters squash uh, on the blog site, we've got a few. Uh, I, did, I did one a little while ago about some sort of important elements for training as a Masters player and we've got another one that looks at the kind of physiological changes that, that occur as, as, as you age as a player. Um, we've got a few features. We were trying to get a few um, interviews with some of the, the sort of uh, more successful Masters players to, you know, hear it from the, the horse's mouth, as it were, to hear what they've done as they've grown older and how they've changed their training. Because, you know, I can put together routines and give suggestions, but it's going to be a lot more, I think, useful to, to hear from, from the guys themselves. You know, how do these right. successful players schedule their training around work commitments, family commitments, you know, how do they continue to be successful um, and find time to do all those sort of elements, even as, as they're getting older and, you know, not quite as uh, sprightly as perhaps they once were. Right on. Well, Gary, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, I know you've got your Twitter, you've got Twitter uh, social platform. You're on uh, Facebook uh, a little bit, but uh, it's mostly through Twitter that, that you uh, promote your, what you're doing, isn't it? Yeah, Twitter, I tend to use, um, you know, I put sort of the odd sort of tip up there, but I use a lot of sort of links. If I've picked up a good article, I often get asked about things like that. So I tend to repost a lot of um, stuff that I've read and I've found useful. I tend to, to use Twitter a lot for that. Um, my Instagram, I tend to use a little bit more for videos of training. So anybody looking for sort of training ideas and watching some of the pro guys train. So what, um, what's your Twitter? What are your handles on Twitter and Instagram? You can search for just for Gary Nisbet on both. Um, the Twitter is it's sort of shortened. It's UNQ Fit Solutions, um, and then the Instagram is Unique Fitness Solutions. So yeah, if you search for Unique Fitness Solutions and Gary Nisbet, then you should be able to find both of those on there. All right, and obviously uh, the great work you and Jesse and the rest of the Squash Skills team are doing uh, uh, is fantastic as well, and we can we can uh, subscribe to Squash Skills and get all of that as well. Yeah, as, as we've said there, we're always looking to make our content as relevant as possible. We've had some great stuff on there recently from from Jesse, and you know Lee Drew's always good, and Paul Carter and Jethro, and. You know, there's some really good squash minds on there and, um, yeah, some, some great information available there. All right. Well, th- uh, thanks again, Gary, and uh, sorry about the, uh, the, the email mix-up uh, earlier on. <laughs> we got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, take care, sir, and uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, let's do it again. Look forward to it. Thanks, Jerry. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Well, once again, uh, Jesse and Gary, thanks so much. That was really good stuff. Uh, now I guess I'm going to go back and take some notes uh, from uh, all of that intel there. 
really good stuff from the boys from, uh, from squashscales.com. I just want to say also uh, thanks to all the listeners who, uh, you know, who give me a few likes and comments uh, on, uh, on the Facebook page and the SoundCloud page as well. Uh, it's been really, really uh, great hearing from you. Uh, what we have upcoming, uh, we, I've got several podcasts in the works. Uh, one in particular next week, uh, there's a book out now on Amazon.com, uh, Sharif Khan, uh, a biography, and uh, this is uh, written by Rob Dinnerman. He's been on the podcast before, so looking to have him back uh, to talk about his new book as well. Uh, we seem to be uh, the, the Squash Newfoundland uh, podcast, with, uh, which I teased uh, several months ago, seemed to die off, but uh, it seems to uh, have taken shape once again. Uh, the lads from uh, from the rock, as they say, uh, contacted me recently. So uh, hopefully we get that uh, uh, podcast up there because these guys are they're, they're great guys. Uh, they love their squash, and it's a different, uh, very interesting story that uh, they have to tell about uh, uh, the squash community there, which is quite unique uh, uh, in Newfoundland. So uh, then also we've got several other uh, podcasts related to, to the pro game coming up as well. So really looking forward to that. Uh, interesting podcasts coming at you. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening, and take care. Have a great day. Goodbye now.